Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's a hot evening in the Sacramento Delta. A wedding band is serenading guests gathered on the lawn. The musicians are dressed in white mariachi suits. They're playing traditional Mexican instruments like the guitarron and vihuela. They're also all women. I'm Leslie McClurg, in this week for Sasha Coca. It's the California Report magazine, and we're starting off today meeting women taking the stage in the male-dominated world of mariachi. Even 50 years ago, women playing mariachi was rare. I grew up with it, and I remember just admiring these, these guys, but there was only guys. <laughs> Today, though, women like Dinora Klingler are rewriting the story of male-dominated mariachi culture. As KQED's Bianca Taylor tells us, her band, Mariachi Bonitas, is just one of the all-female mariachi groups that is taking the genre by a storm. Before Denora Klingler was performing with Stevie Wonder and Celia Cruz and winning awards for her singing and songwriting, she was a nine-year-old girl in Mexico City playing this song on the guitar. Oh, you're going to make me cry. It's called El Andariego. We always had music playing in the house. I fell in love with music just by listening my parents uh, singing along. It was also the song she sang at her elementary school graduation. I could not believe the applause and the acceptance of the people. And in that very moment, I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Donora built a thriving music career in Mexico City. But when she moved to the U.S. in the 90s, there were fewer opportunities than she expected. She finally got her break while eating dinner at a restaurant where a mariachi band was playing. Her husband convinced the band to let her sing a few songs, and the leader of the band was so impressed by her voice, he asked her to join his all-female mariachi group. Donora was stunned. Everywhere that you go in Mexico, mariachi music is is, is a male-dominated genre of music. This music has been a male-dominated art form. And women have participated, but like in many other fields, their voice and their presence has been uh, erased, unfortunately, or forgotten. Dr. Lenore Sochil Perez is executive director for the Mariachi Women's Foundation in Los Angeles and has spent three decades researching women in mariachi. She says since the beginning, nearly everything about the genre has excluded women. 
The traditional suits of mariachi performers, called acharro, are modeled on outfits worn by male ranch owners. There's the symbolism of being a male ranch owner who, who owns property and owns cattle and rides a horse. The venues where mariachi music was traditionally played were places women weren't allowed to go. Back in, you know, mid-1800s, they played in bars and they played at parties and they played at festivals, and that was not a place for women. So over time, that music was clearly identified with men. Traditional mariachi songs tell stories from a male perspective about traveling, seducing beautiful women, and fighting for their country. Here, Mexican superstar Vicente Fernandez sings the popular mariachi song El Rey. The lyrics celebrate his life of freedom, doing what he wants with or without money, because even without a throne, he's still the king. And mariachi songs are performed with a macho bravado. You watch a mariachi, they're not hunched over and looking shy. They have their instruments high, their backs are straight. Uh, they're playing assertively and playing, uh, you know, with their arms, digging into their violin or strumming their guitar with a lot of strength. Mariachi was a man's world. But the first woman to break into the genre was an absolute force of nature. Rosa Carino was only 13 when she joined an all-male mariachi group in 1903. She later went on to direct her own band. You know, being a musician and a mariachi musician at that time was unique enough. But having a woman um, lead a group is even uh, a greater challenge for women at that time. According to family lore, Rosa carried a gun with her at all times. And she inspired other women to play. The very first all-female mariachi group formed in 1948. These early female mariachi musicians were often harassed while performing and forced to quit when they became mothers. Despite these challenges, though, Dr. Perez says there's a reason why women have been and continue to be drawn to this genre. A lot of the women that I've spoken to have spoken about the freedoms that they find in performing this music. Sometimes it's economic, sometimes it's expression, sometimes it's identity. But the important thing is that they're gaining something that they're not allowed to have or that they have not achieved in everyday life. The Chicano movement of the 1960s was a watershed moment for women in mariachi. It was a return to our roots, which included rediscovering our, our native music, which included mariachi. Colleges around the country started teaching mariachi in new ethnomusicology departments. Before this, the tradition of mariachi was often passed from father to son by ear. Now that it was being taught in schools, it opened the door for women and girls to participate. That's how Dr. Perez learned to play mariachi. It was 1973, and she was a middle schooler in East L.A. And I remember hearing the sound of the guitarron, the bass, for the very first time when I walked in the room. That deep sound just resonated in my heart and in my body. I had like a visceral uh, response to that. And it was just absolutely beautiful. And when I played mariachi music, I felt such freedom. You know, at home, I was told to be quiet, to be calm, uh, to be uh, control my behavior. But in mariachi, 
My mariachi tell, teacher was telling me to let out a yell when I felt the emotion. <laughs> mariachi music is about feelings, okay? You cannot just go and... No, it's, it's going and put your heart and, and give it that, that soul through, through the notes. Denora Klingler from the Sacramento Mariachi Group loves that emotion, too. She loved playing mariachi with other women and knew she could take the genre further. But her plans were sidelined during the COVID pandemic. I was going crazy about not being able to play for anybody because I am used to perform live for people and live audiences. So I started playing outside on my here in front of my house. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Denora set up her microphone and speakers and played for her neighbors weekly. One of them recorded her performance and it got picked up by a news station in Sacramento. Well, we have a, my, my beautiful neighbors here that are joining for the cafecito this morning. Oh, I love it. ¿Quién será la que me quiere mí? ¿Quién será? Denora took this as a sign. The world was just as hungry for mariachi music as she was. So she put up a post on her Facebook page. Are you a female musician? Do you have experience in mariachi music? Hit me up. I'm forming a, an all-female mariachi band here in Sacramento. And sure enough, you know, these girls start responding. And I play violin, I play violin, I play this, I play that. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy, you know? Before long, she had auditioned about a dozen women, and Mariachi Bonitas was born. It was fast. It was fast, and uh, I was completely blown away. It was, wow, this is happening. Mariachi Bonitas is open to all women, not just those with Latina backgrounds. You know, and we are absolutely inclusive in every single aspect, you know? You, as long as you are a good person and a person with, with uh, discipline and passion for music, you're welcome. Donora says there are some people who won't book mariachi bonitas because they want a, quote, traditional mariachi band, one with men. But she also sees that old mindset changing. Mariachi Bonitas has appeared on The Kelly Clarkson Show twice. Uh, from Sacramento, California, give it up for Dinora, Janessa, Audra, Jordan, and Samantha Mariachi they perform at events all around Northern California, including the Mariachi Festival de Sacramento, which Denora founded. Something that sets Mariachi Bonitas apart, they're writing and composing their own music, which is rare. You know, we want to let them know that we can sing love songs, that we can also serenade our men, that we can also serenade our mothers. We can do it. She wrote six of the songs on their album, Por Ser Mujer which means to be a woman. That song I wrote specifically to tell women, we can do it, you can do it. You are amazing, you are great, and you have to believe in yourself. Quiero cantarle a las mujeres en el mundo, las que han sufrido y se han sabido levantar de los fracasos y reveses de la vida y son valientes luchadoras de verdad. Para 
That story about Mariachi Bonitas and the history of women in mariachi came to us from KQED's Bianca Taylor. Now we turn to our Hidden Gem series where we take you to out-of-the-way spots in the Golden State. Today we're in Lassen Volcanic National Park, sometimes called California's Yellowstone because of all of its geothermal activity. This area at the base of the Cascade Range was charred by a major wildfire in 2021. But in parts of the park, you can still see volcanic peaks covered with snow in winter and colorful fields of wildflowers in the summer. One trail at the foot of Lassen Peak winds past hemlock and white bark pine trees. You can hear birds and yellow-winged grasshoppers. Those are grasshoppers, right? Click, they, click, 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 click. Yes, they are. That's reporter Catherine Monahan taking a hike in the park. She's actually looking for a part of the park that looks more like Mars. It's known for its bubbling mud pots and steaming events. It's called Bumpus Hell. The trail starts near a sapphire lake. Park ranger Shanda Oaks meets me there. So... First things first, why is it called Bumpass Hill? It's named after a person called Kendall Van Hook Bumpus. He was in this area in the 1860s. Okay, Bumpus. Got it. Bumpus. Bumpus had brought a group of people out to see the surreal landscape. And while showing them around, he stepped through the crust. Underneath that thin part was a mud pot that was churning and boiling away. And that mud is also not only boiling, but very acidic. His leg was horribly burned. He was telling everyone it was like going to the depths of hell. Not his personal hell that he burned his leg, but rather just that it's got these steam vents. It was a little bit of both, yes. <laughs> it was his personal hell at that time. He ended up um, probably getting it amputated. Not a good day. No, not a good day for Mr. Kendall Bumpus. Jagged mountains ring the horizon here. The last one to erupt was Mount Lassen in 1915, Ash from the explosion rained down as far away as Nevada. There's a magma chamber under our feet. It's roughly five miles deep, um, which is fueling the thermal features at Bumpus Hill. We can smell the sulfur and see the volcanoes in the distance, and it's, it's like another world. That's Marilyn Steinberg visiting from L.A. She's resting on a bench at an overlook. Down below, the earth is white and steaming perforated by murky pools. And then there's this bright pool um, right in the center, like a bright aqua that stands out against the, the fumes of the sulfur coming up in the sky with the, the lovely clouds up there. It's just amazing. Rain and snow that falls in the winter seeps deep into the ground, down toward that magma chamber under our feet. The water then heats up and rises back to the surface, escaping as the boiling pools we're looking at. When one of those pools bubbles away, what's left is a steam vent. I make my way down the trail, past a boulder field where a serious grasshopper party is going on. Oh, there's a little chipmunk. To where visitors Patty and John Solkowski are peering at a churning, grayish-brown pool. What I thought was interesting was that NASA studying this because of the microorganisms that are in these pools of sulfur because they think it might lead to how life is on Mars or something. Kind of looks like Mars. Yeah, it I mean, does. How would I know? But. <laughs> what you think of is Mars, right? Right. 
and all the steam pots. I'm just surprised by how much steam there is. Oh, I know. It's a little bit hotter than the hot tub, though. <laughs> just a little bit? Yes. Yeah, I don't think they want you in it. Yeah, don't worry. There is nothing enticing about these smelly, muddy pools. But microscopic single-celled organisms called extremophiles, they love it in there. They use sulfur for energy and convert it into sulfuric acid, which is basically battery acid. And that eats through the rocks and bubbles out into a stinky white creek running next to us. Green is like milk. <laughs> it does look like milk. Smoky milk. Ew. It's carrying sheets of ghostly white algae, another life form that actually likes this heat and acid. It looks like if you heated up milk and then you let it sit there for too long and it made a skin on top. And there's these like remnants of skin being pulled downstream. We walk past signs warning us to stay on the boardwalk, featuring gruesome photos of blistery burns or stick figures plummeting into chasms of lava. A thick sulfuric mist blows across the land. Cody Harwood, visiting from San Diego, is taking it in. I don't know, this is just very, it's very surreal, honestly. Just like this barren hellscape, and it smells like eggs. <laughs> Some sort of um, interstellar experience, if you will. <laughs> I, I will. Yes. As the sulfuric acid reacts with the rocks in the ground, new brightly colored minerals are formed. In front of us, iron pyrite makes a shiny patch of froth. Harwood points at the pool it's floating on. It's like a vanilla green. That is from silica and probably some algae. And we got a little bit of red, some oranges here. That's from sulfates. And a lot of smoke just coming out of these big holes out of the ground. He gestures toward the biggest steam vent called Big Boiler, which heats up to more than 300 degrees. Scientists expect that this volatile region will erupt again. When, nobody knows, but meanwhile, you can get right up close and listen to geology at work. That's KQED's Catherine Monahan in Bumpus Hell in Lassen Volcanic National Park. If you've got an idea for our California Hidden Gem series, drop us a note at calreportmag at kqed.org. That's calreportmag at kqed.org. And now, after our hike, how about some food? It's been a couple of generations since a wave of Vietnamese dishes like banh mi and pho joined the pantheon of beloved dishes in our state. Why don't we just show the food that we eat at home? That's the thing that we want to do. KQED's Rachel Myro has the story of a pop-up in San Jose that delivers authentic Vietnamese cuisine with a distinctive twist. It's part of our series Flavor Profile, about Californians who made the pivot to start a food business during the pandemic. Deanne and Hugh Lay have a habit of diving in feet first together. From the beginning, really. They knew within three days of meeting each other, they would marry. Just like we like to jump in without any plans and figure it out. That's like the theme of us, I think. Yeah, for sure. 
how could they possibly know so soon? It's not just that they both shared the same cultural heritage from the same part of southern Vietnam. It's also that when they spend time in the kitchen together, they get excited about food in the same way. They like to play with the dishes they grew up with. In a way, they acknowledge their elders might not appreciate or understand, well, Hugh's family in particular. You know, oh, no one will get it, no one will get it. They don't understand that. That flavor will work. Vianne's family got on board early, including her mother, who is coming to live with them from Vietnam. My family, like, encouraged us, like, oh, yeah, you should do it. But the thing is, like, if you're going to do something, like, focus in this. So you make the decision, all right, let's do this, you know, we're, we're ready, we've, we've got the money saved. What were the first steps? <laughs> You're laughing at me. <laughs> money, money saved. saved. Money saved. No, it's more like we're going to fly this plane as we're building it. Hetze started three and a half years ago during the pandemic, when Deanne and Hugh arguably jumped in feet first into the food business. Hugh spent three years as a line cook back in college, but Deanne was working retail at Costco, so it was quite a pivot when they decided to launch Hetze. Today, Hetze pops up at least three times a week, mainly at farmer's markets like the one on Fridays in front of Kaiser Permanente in Santa Clara. Part of their mission to shine a light on the flavors of the Mekong Delta, famous for its fish and produce. The Lay's people are Ming Dai. I want to showcase my regional food, the culture as well. We are the rice basket of Vietnam, and as well as all the produce, like the fish. Yeah. The way that I think a lot of the Ming Dai people like really approach food is that there's a lot of abundance in terms of flavor. There's a lot of creativity playing around with sour, savory, sweet, bitters even, you know. They're also looking to deconstruct and reconstruct familiar dishes to pull in the flavors they've encountered in California and apply those to the Mekong sensibility, delivering a mashup that delights the taste buds, whether or not you're particularly sophisticated about Vietnamese cuisine. We are not only like doing Ming Tai food, right? We also like using the fresh produce here, you know, like strawberry and fennels, they are going well together. The results are a little different from what you're likely familiar with if you're a fan of Saigon-centric Vietnamese cuisine. So take a dish like soy ma. It's a rice dish, a classic comfort food in Vietnamese households, which means, of course, that every household plays with the concept. It's not just that the lap sung or Chinese-style smoked sausage is made from scratch. Diane and Hugh also center local ingredients. The sticky rice cooked in banana leaves with coconut water comes from Coda Farms in the Central Valley. The strawberries and fennel come, when they're in season, from the local farmers markets. We're evolving it to what we think is the best version of what this dish is meant to do, right? By incorporating things like uh, a coconut chili sambal, which is inspiration from South India, which is a flavor we're really, really into, and incorporating and creating something to uniquely us and uniquely here in the Bay Area. KQED visual producer Darren, too, came with me to take some video. Naturally, he tucked into the soy man getting a forkful of the sausage. I love that soon. He took a bite, and his eyes lit up in delighted surprise. Really good. Um, one tamarind drink and one banh mi. 
Then there's the banh mi hetse style, described here by Quinn Mai Nguyen, who's taking orders on the day we visit in the hetse tent. She first discovered the lays as a happy customer, by the way, and then started working for them, as you do. Bun mi basically means bread in Vietnamese. And so there's different types of bun mi um, with different um, toppings and ingredients. And this bun mi is made with braised pork and egg that's cooked in coconut water. And it's put inside the bun mi with pickled mustard as well as some um, bird's eye chili and garlic. And then it's topped off with the braised juices from the, the meat and egg. Alex Shore, a candidate for San Jose City Council, has become a regular at the Rose Garden Market pop-up in San Jose. My girlfriend and I got three of the banh mi sandwiches. We got uh, a chicken one, a broccoli, goat cheese, apple one, and the braised pork that they have here today. So we did a sampling last week. And which is your favorite and why? My favorite is the braised pork. It's just really juicy and... Yet, I always appreciate how creative Hetse is with all their ingredients. They've got unusual combinations, and they've definitely exposed me to new stuff over the years. Like many couples in the food business, one partner still works a day job. But Hetse is running in large part thanks to online crowdfunding and the couple's dynamic Instagram feed. It's taking some time for the money to roll in, but Hugh's optimistic. I think we're creating something that's uniquely us and new, and I think that there's a lot of things that we're excited for. And as long as we are able to keep creating and people are interested in what we're doing, I think that's the fulfillment that we're looking for. Sounds to me like they're in it for the long haul, but don't wait too long. Get off the couch and get over to their next pop-up to taste for yourself what the fuss is all about. KQED's Rachel Myro brought us that story as part of our Flavor Profile series about people who started food businesses during the pandemic. Again, the name of the pop-up is Hetze, and you can check out photos of their food at calreport.org. And that's it for the California Report magazine this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. With big help this week from Izzy Bloom and Jessica Carissa. Brendan Willard is our engineer. And I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Sasha Coca. You can catch all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.